episode 44 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we explore the themes of well-being and sustainability in real estate today. This time around, we have more of a social equity focus, as we're talking to Rashik Fatah, the founding director of Our Future Cities in South Africa. Rashik works across disciplines, engaging with city planners, designers, architects, researchers and anthropologists in the quest for promoting more sustainable and inclusive cities, not just in Cape Town or in South Africa, but increasingly around the African continent as a whole. Our conversation covers the weight of South Africa's history of top-down oppression and how that impacted urban development, the kind of tactical urban intervention that Rashik might propose to turn a, a handful of parking bays into a parklet for inner-city respite and a quiet zone, the challenges of developing enough affordable housing, how concerns over safety can be baked into new precinct development plans from the start. We look at some examples of successful downtown regeneration by local developers Urban Lime, and we discuss the student accommodation opportunity in neglected 1960s-era buildings in central Cape Town and Durban in particular. Rashik is erudite, he's determined, and he's fighting on the front line of city development. So here he is. Rashik, thanks for being with us on the show today. Great you have great to have you as a guest. I thought we could start with an initial introduction to the context in which you're working there in South Africa in particular, and the government's policy of black empowerment and how that's influencing the work you do around urban regeneration and development. Uh, thanks, Madden. Great to be here. Uh, that's a very large question, but I suppose I, I will I'll start by giving some context. Uh, I think in most parts of the world, there have obviously been difficult histories, whether it's uh, Colombia or, or in the US, but South Africa has a very particular history where I would say that over about two to three hundred years, um, there has been uh, top-down planning and oppression based on race, in particular what we call uh, persons of color or black African or colored in the South African context. And so whereas many cities and, and towns have developed gradually and, um, you know, despite inequality or despite racism, in South Africa it is, it is quite a scientific planning approach so that all parts of urban life and city living uh, for the longest time um, was based on the ideal that uh, the white population uh, deserves space and, and ownership of land and a good quality of life, and that uh, everyone else um, needed to be far away, have less rights, and have their movement and, and who they marry, where they live managed. Um, uh, according to the sort of ideal of separate development called apartheid, but ultimately, that seeped into every aspect of life, from the bus you used to the museums you could access to, whether your culture could be expressed or you could even protest. And so I think that's the point to start with that we are sort of, uh, you know, 25, 26 years into a democratic society, which is very young in terms of having these basic rights and freedoms. Um, but what we've inherited is, a, is an urban project uh, which stems from... I would say an economic, social, cultural injustice um, on on so many levels of people's psyche and urban environment. Thank you for that intro. It's 
it's such an interesting topic and so crucial, I think, for those of us working in this space where perhaps certainly in Europe, that such things are almost taken for granted that, that that shouldn't be the case. And yet there are clearly examples for, for say, in the South of the US, for example, where you know, a similar things happening not that long ago. And so today, in terms of a positive promotion as a way to rebalance that status quo, as a way to empower and provide greater sense of social equity, like how can your role, how can our future cities mm. as a business contribute to that and up to now, like how have you been going about contributing to that that sort of generational transformation whereby cities are able to yeah, find a greater form of social equity for all groups, no matter what race they're mm. coming from? Yeah, I think we've we've always taken a quite sort of pragmatic approach. The first is, you know, collaboration and cooperation with all sectors, so government businesses, uh, non-profits, communities, individuals, which is quite difficult, I suppose. Um, I, I think there is the perception that to be on the side of, of uh, people and communities and, and their prosperity, you have to be against uh, government and you have to be against business. And there are times that we are, and we do advocate very clearly and as an independent group, we do so. So that's the first thing I think it's sort of, creative but messy, tumultuous and sometimes productive relationships, which are not perfect processes. And then second, I think, is just small steps to a better future. Um, what can we do in the next year or two, whether it's, let's say, tactical urbanism? Can we take two parking bays away, provide free Wi-Fi and a place to sit for those who can't afford coffee shops on high streets? Or can we study the culture in a particular neighborhood of migrants so that the public spaces start to reflect how they trade, how they live, and how they move around spaces. And, and in that particular case, in the in the Belleville uh, town centre, which is about twenty kilometres from the the city centre of Cape Town, uh, it's priority people from across across the the African diaspora, so uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, and so forth, living there uh, safely, safely, and in in societies that um, that are evolving. So I think those two are quite key, is that sort of uh, finding ways to cooperate and and taking small steps, be it policy, being it uh, physical spaces, um, or getting conversations going. Uh, for example, in the affordable housing space, uh, one of the biggest um, challenges we found when we, I suppose, perhaps joined that field through a conference we hosted was that uh, developers in, had never sat in a room with uh, non-profits and government working in the affordable housing space. So if you think of London, which has quite an established set of rules and guidelines around affordable housing, in South Africa, despite having some of the highest income inequality in the world, if not the highest in Cape Town and Johannesburg, um, they hadn't sat around a table really to say, how do we make this policy work? What are the requirements and, and what is possible? So it's in these various sort of layers, I suppose, that, that we do our work. Okay, so I'm going to pick up on a couple of things. Let's just dip back into the public realm discussion because I think that's a really interesting piece there around how you, in a sense, give even a small slice of the city, and I presume we're talking about sort of you know, downtown urban centres, 
back to those who perhaps, as you say, uh, are not in a position to spend the equivalent of 10 US dollars on a on a, a milky sweet coffee in, in a Starbucks equivalent, right? And so you're yeah, creating, yeah. you're trying to create these small interventions. Now, is that is that about bringing greenery back into the, the to the city? Is that about public furniture and safety? What are the main concerns and the drivers when you're looking at, at an intervention like that? I think there's the ambition of the dream and, and that is, you know, large amounts of affordable housing for uh, lots of different incomes and groups, you know, in or near the city center, you know, so lots of supply of, of housing, which, you know, takes a long time and it's been particularly slow in, in actually all South African inner cities, uh, I think for political reasons, for lack of expertise, for lack of will. So that's, that's the prize. And I, I don't think we should take our eyes off the prize. You know, the, the, the dense cities of, of Spain or elsewhere, they are, they sort of thrive based on lots of people living close together um, and having quality spaces. So that's the prize. But I think the the second, what you touched on was, uh, is how do we provide a positive lived experience based on how somebody um, uh, occupies space or how, or their sort of uh, mobility uh, needs. And uh, the way we think about it is, uh, is as much as possible to have empathy and to understand the lived experience of that person. So while somebody working uh, close to where I am today or close to Parliament or, or the regional government buildings in, in Cape Town might, uh, might need a community park, of course, where they live, um, they're probably traveling an hour and a half in the morning, if not more, to their place of work, spending about eight to nine, ten hours, and then traveling another hour and a half, two hours. So for us, the joy, the the safety needs to be incorporated into all aspects. And so, you know, it's really important that public transport interchanges, which are public spaces, are clean, well-managed, well-lit, you know, have free Wi-Fi. It's really important that um, we understand that when somebody arrives in the centre, it might be the norm for people in, let's say, London to walk the last two miles. In Africa, it's required. You're not going to pay for another trip to go, you know, two or three kilometers further. So safety of streets, safe crossings, um, uh, for example, outside uh, our central train station, you know, some of the crossings, which are, I think eight traffic lanes are about sort of maximum 45 seconds. So we do advocate for long crossing times for for people um, walk, uh, walking around or doing the sort of last mile or two trip. And then, of course, when they're at work, Apart from their work environment, which which is somewhat out of our hands in some cases, the plazas, the squares, the gardens, the parks, that could probably encapsulate somebody's entire public space experience for the day. Um, It is highly unlikely that there are situations where, not highly unlikely, but I suppose it's it might be possible for myself to go to to the to Sea Point, which is which is near the ocean, and go for a walk or run off to work. But for somebody else who's traveling two hours back home and, and uh, due to apartheid and other reasons, possibly living in a dangerous neighborhood, you know, it's unlikely that at 7 p.m. at night in the dark, they're going to go to a local park to enjoy their sort of public space experience. So our city centers do matter. And, and where people are for the majority of the time influences the health from, uh, from the safety, from, you know, a bit of sun on a bench in lunchtime to shade under a tree. And, uh, and this is how we think about, about that is, yes, the big prize is 
uh, people being allowed to live in or near economic centers. But until we get there at scale, we have to think about you know the 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. experience of of the majority of our city. You're essentially integrating elements of of nature, nature exposure, bringing nature back into the city, of social equity, and uh, a well-being aspect. I think with with what you're describing there, so it makes it makes complete sense. The affordable housing piece, just to give us the context on that, in terms of how that relates to geography, is there. Or do you see an opportunity in terms of downtown regeneration, in terms of bringing affordable housing in collaboration with developers back into, say, the downtown of uh, Joburg or Durban? Or is it essentially a project that's inevitably going to be limited to the peripheries of the city and therefore that that mobility question is locked in place for the foreseeable Mm. future? Or is it a combination of both? How do you see it? It's definitely a combination of both. Uh, Unfortunately, some of the the policies of of the early 90s of the Mandela era government meant that um, where land was cheap, cities built housing. And they were often poor quality and quite far away. So we've actually had a perpetuation of of apartheid-style planning because land was further away, was cheaper, large open pieces, uh, governments generally delivering substandard housing. So I think uh, there are a few myths about uh, in, a, in a city centre or near city centre housing. And, and the first is that there's no financial case, when in reality there is a massive demand from, from various income groups. Uh, and we're not talking about free housing or housing that is for those of no income. We're talking about, I think in the UK, it's called essential service workers, key workers. So we're looking at the sort of full spectrum of people whose lives could, you know, who could gain time and, uh, and gain so much more by living in or closer to their to their place of work and then secondly um you know some of these centers at night are quite dead you know so um they don't have the residential density so if you took an aerial view of cape town city center or you took an an aerial view of johannesburg or durban um they're not dense enough in terms of residential population to to be 24 7 walkable vibrant spaces where restaurants cafes schools uh, and other services start to respond to that demand. So I think there's there's a, a financial case, but there's also just a social case for bringing back people into the center. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that, especially with the student population. There are almost sort of these um, overnight conversions of inner city office buildings. I think there are four or five in Cape Town currently underway of converting buildings to accommodate students. And students are one group of the affordable housing group um, who need accommodation at certain prices which the market couldn't couldn't provide. So I think everything from baristas to nurses to police men and women, um, there's a massive demand. There's a financial case, and and again, it, it reduces the carbon emissions of people's travel. And then, of course, just you know, sort of pure spatial justice in terms of um, people being excluded from the past. Yeah. Let's look back around onto the student accommodation piece because I think I think there's more in that. Um, but it, it seems like in a sense, what we're talking about is the creation of, of sustainable precincts, right? Because you're saying it can't just be a residential piece that comes in because then if there isn't also the public space, the public realm interventions, and there aren't also you know, ground level retail and street lighting and a sense of community, etc. So other examples that you're seeing in SA at the moment around developments of, of a sort of precinct level where a developer in a public-private partnership, perhaps, is able to come in and 
almost take over a, a small area of the city rather than just one building. Like, is that a, a viable solution? And is it happening yet? And if not, then what's the workaround? Is it about various developers collaborating together? Or are you seeing examples where they're able to do things on a slightly bigger scale to change an entire mini district or precinct? I think I think precinct and districts are the way to go. I think you need a focus area um, of change and you need to demonstrate change. I think um, I was recently, again, near the, the Civic Center government building in Cape Town. And uh, it's a very windy part of the city and, and it's got a, a bus station and the the civic center, which is where the city's the local government is housed. And just across the road, there's a private development um, with a massive open restaurant, a landscaped garden, there's shelter and there's wind. And it was amazing to me how two different blocks, one delivered entirely by the private sector and one, you know, the government building by the public sector had completely different uh, experiences. The one was harsh, windy, modernist, unprotected, unsheltered, and had no retail. The other had all of these things, had spaces for people to sit who could buy lunch or, or people who brought their own lunch. It was sheltered, wind protected. Um, it had sort of embedded sort of principles of, of good landscaping and using rainwater. So I think, um, I think precincts are important because uh, it, it essentially is private sector needing to drive change. And to do so, often you need scale uh, from a financial perspective, from a viability perspective. And, and and you sort of hope the public sector comes along because I think um, there is this idea, at least in South Africa, that um, uh, public sector must alone drive the change. And I think that example, uh, you know, with two buildings really adjacent to each other shows you how you could treat people correctly and provide them with uh, open, welcoming spaces uh, without it officially being uh, a public-led uh, project. Um, and this, these, both these spaces are, you know, within the sort of uh, biggest transport interchange in, in the city within, you know, uh, two-minute walk. And, uh, and so I think, yeah, precincts are great to demonstrate change, to stitch buildings together. And look, South Africa has one of the highest crime rates in the world. I think it's important to think about each and every block. How do you make it... Uh, safer for women and girls to move through, in particular that group, to move from one block to the next. And I think having two or three vibrant uh, uh, precincts with, with uh, you know, active street frontages and then having nothing for two blocks is quite a, we call them crocodile zones. So you really want precincts and people to work at scale so that there is enough, enough activity over large parts of the city and that, I suppose, links into the, the way that we've defined walkability here, which is it's not just about having pavements, but about having activity, having destinations, um, having decent lighting. Um, even the most well-landscaped, well-designed route at night in terms of walkability infrastructure, if it's not safe to go, somebody simply won't walk it, um, despite you know the best urban design principles. So... Precincts are essential, and I think it's that mesh of public-private that people are uncomfortable with here. But it really is a sort of the, a driving factor where you can start to see change, which actually includes um, the majority of people. So you mentioned the student accommodation piece, and it's a sector that's currently going through a process of what can only be described reinvention, at least in the U.S. and Europe. I mean, there's there's so much 
to, to use an overused term, disruption in the market going on, but I'm seeing a lot of innovation. And I, I wanted to just ask whether, in terms of those mixed-use developers going into uh, previously less um, desirable districts in downtown areas, for example, like are they are they leading with student accommodation? Are they leading with affordable housing and building in retail and street level activities? Is that typically the mix? Like who's what are the what's the first entry point into that re- urban regeneration process? Because you might assume that student accommodation could be a good contender for that. I'm guessing. Mm. I think it's different. I think. Um... Because South Africa and, and cities like Cape Town, Durban, and Johannesburg don't have uh, proper affordable housing, ha- affordable accommodation, affordable housing policies, which require a certain percentage, it's it's unlikely that in the short term that's going to be what's leading, and that's very unfortunate because mm-hmm. we've lost, let's say, twenty five years of that um, of any sort of um, privately delivered uh, units in that space. Um, what we're seeing is, uh, I suppose, if you look at the work of Urban Lyme and the, the CBD of Durban, what they found was that there was massive demand from small and micro businesses, but no inner city buildings uh, which provided for their smaller space needs. Um, so in one building, I think it's called Pioneer Place, uh, empty for years. Um, each floor was compartmentalized into, into sort of smaller units for musicians and tailors and seamstresses and the entire building within a year was was fully occupied um and i think the same um uh, you know in in parts of cape town where we see um b and c grade office buildings um you know with windows and views of the harbor and the ocean and and the mountain are um again almost within a year or two being converted into student accommodation just because of of the massive demand there so i think there'll always be um there'll always be a response based on what people need and what the demand is. And I think in Durban, you could only really rent a massive floor plate in an office building. Uh, and so, but there was a demand for, from businesses. Um, uh, and in Cape Town and other places, there's a huge demand for well-located student housing because of the proximity of academic institutions and, and colleges. Um, unfortunately, due to the lack of policy, we, We've seen that in areas that need regeneration, often it's it's um, there's either a lack of response or a lack of investment, um, or there's a lack of incentive to develop um, student or affordable housing, uh, or in cases where there is development, it's really speaking to the upper middle income, um, micro units, uh, one bed units, and uh, again, that's just because. Uh, that's the market that can afford um, that project without any subsidies or support from the government. Um, so we're uh, we're also seeing in some places industrial areas slightly changing. There are sort of more slightly more design or art firms moving in. But I think like various parts of the world, you know, the East End of London, um, that's generally how it happens and quite slowly until the sort of glass towers start arriving. Um, so I think it's in this case it's really up to the public sector to to earmark land available for social and affordable housing to get those sites off the ground um, and to have you know a broader sector of the population benefit from the change. I think as much as we don't like change, there are uh, so many case studies around the world with the edges of cities, the semi-industrial areas, the areas within five to ten minutes of of the center of the city uh, changing. Um, you know the um, 
industrial areas are no longer needed in particular places. I think you will see even now, for example, you know, offices are no longer needed in, in particular places. So there's always going to be an evolution. It's just about whether a public benefit is embedded into that um, and whether municipalities and councils can be proactive in, in making sure that as that change happens, um, the public benefits over two or three decades. So at the sort of city planning and legislation level, are there currently incentives or, or even uh, sort of enough pressure being placed on, on the private developers to incorporate elements of either you know, an enhanced public realm or some element of social housing, which is something that we see a lot of in, in Europe, for example. Mm. You might expect to find that in South Africa, but it sounds like perhaps at, at, at the moment that perhaps isn't happening or isn't happening at a, at a sort of uniform mm. level across the board. No, it's not happening. I, th- I, think, I think firstly, as I mentioned earlier, the word cooperation, I think in a, in a maturing or young democracy, um, I suppose like if you could think of the US or more developed societies, uh, cooperation, lobbying, uh, negotiating, it's, it's pretty much part of the culture. You know that you'll come to the table with 10 items, but you'll probably both only agree on six. In South Africa, we haven't quite gotten there. It seems to be all or nothing. Uh, and then, of course, with the absence of policy or incentives, um, the market simply won't respond. Um, mm. And I think we've, we've, we've missed the... We've missed the the mark when it comes to public infrastructure as well. So, um, you know, if a building can't include or meet all the requirements, then there could be alternatives. So, um, I think it's called Section 16 or Section 16 policy in the UK, where you need to or require to contribute to to build the, the nearest subway station, or to provide the station, uh, or to maintain a park. And I think with those sort of new relationships, you you simply have to start. And and um, and I think given the pressure on local government budgets here, um, unfortunately they'll be forced into that space, which will require that deals be made to ensure that, let's say, a new developer maintains a park over twenty years or uh, develops spaces above the uh, a transport hub, um, but operates and maintains the transport hub over twenty years. So these these relationships now might seem. Uh, complicated or outside of policy, but I think like we've seen with the water crisis in Cape Town or the pandemic, um, the future often arrives and uh, we, we only seem to be responding because uh, I can show you that the the current model of, of local governments here, which relies on property taxes as a main revenue source, it's not really a viable approach. So I think I think for the best, they'll be forced into partnerships like the ones you've mentioned. It strikes me that there is, as so often with, with South Africa, this complex mix of historical ties and uh, the, the weight of past events on the present and the struggle to liberate um, society in some way from that and to sort of reinvent. But at the same time, on the flip side, there's just amazing opportunities. Every time I'm back there, you can see glimmers of hope of of just fantastic work being done by visionary developers perhaps not at the scale that you might like but i think it's worth pointing that out right i mean it's like i know there's a lot that isn't working but at the same time if you go down there with with the right vision and you can see what's going on 
in some corners, and they might be, you know, the exceptions to the rule rather than the, the standard or the norm. Mm. There are still, there's just so much that can be done. And I think we need to balance the two, right? Because it must be so frustrating to be doing what you're doing and to be facing an uphill struggle. But at the same mm. time, there, there is surely this, this sense of amazing opportunity, right? And, and ways to, to really have a tangible impact not just on individual lives, but effectively on the, the future layout and and livability of the cities mm. that you're you're working in, right? So in a, in a sense, you're, yeah. you're well positioned for that. Absolutely. I think the base of our work is also, which I might have failed to mention, is that, you know, if we get this right in, let's say, Cape Town or Durban, it's really an exceptional quality of life for the, for the, for the majority. Um, the weather is great, first of all. If you think of a city like Durban, between uh, their World Cup stadium and the center, there are huge uh, plots of land publicly owned, which would essentially give, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people um, social housing within five minute walk of the beachfront, you know, sort of three, four, five kilometer promenade. So we're not talking about simply giving people uh, better access. We're talking about probably one of the highest qualities of life that could be delivered. If you think about Cape Town, if we can improve people's travel time by just 30 or 40 minutes, they'd have, go, they'd have time to walk on the beach, to go for a hike. Um, so I think that's really the, the opportunity is that if you can start to provide a city for everyone, both in terms of housing and transport, um, they will have better access, more time to be in, in some of the best places in the world, really. And I think that's why it's so important to to frame the opportunity that way, um, the cost of living is reasonable. Um, the uh, the uh, am- amount of amenities that are available um, at no cost um, are numerous. The amount of parks and um, nature reserves that you could use without you know without buying anything is incredible. So I think this is why we're pushing so hard for these changes. Is just the I would say it's, it's you know. It's if you give people more time and, of course, a, a better way of living and improve their um, economic situation, they arguably are living in, in one of the best places they could. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Well, look, it's great work that you're doing. It's really admirable stuff. What have you got going on at the moment? Like, what does the next 12 months or so look like for, for your team at Our Future Cities? Uh, I'd have to pull out the planner, but uh, <laughs> at the <laughs> moment um, we are... We are actually looking into the, the student accommodation space. Uh, we're uh-huh. looking into um, into forming better connections across Africa, so expanding the kinds of work and projects we're having um, uh, in the next few months, looking more at a sort of pan-African level. Um, and then, yeah, we're continuing a lot of our research on, um, you know, we were inspired, for example, one tiny project, we were inspired by London's Colourful Crossings. You know, how do you raise awareness around commuter safety? And I think London delivered about 18 of those um, art-inspired pedestrian crossings. So we're trying to sort of ramp up um, that project and get through the red tape with the city on that. And um, and then, yeah, it's something that is closer to my heart is we're looking at a 2040 horizon at, at infrastructure and spaces and, and what the city might need in, in the longer term. But... Um, yeah, watch the space, and um, there are always, uh, at any one point, uh, 10 or 15 different projects. Um, and I should probably organize my thoughts better to, to sort of, you know, uh, to present the punchier ones. 
Um, but it sounds uh, great. Yeah. It sounds great. Good that, on you. That's well, listen, it's great. It's meaningful work that you're doing. I think that's that's the key message. So listen, if people want to reach out to you, follow along, see what projects you do have coming uh, over the next few months, what's the best way for them to connect? Yeah, so um, they could follow our future cities uh, on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and then um, they could even just connect with me on my personal LinkedIn as well. Um, we haven't quite got into some of the other platforms um, like TikTok or any of the others, but um, you never know. Sounds good. Rashid, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be here.